Welcome to the special edition of Mile High Magazine. Today we are going to be talking about suicide and mental health in Colorado. You will be hearing first-hand testimonies from teenagers who have been impacted by teen suicide and the issues they face today. You will also learn about the resources that are available to help treat mental health. Your hosts for today are Melissa Moore and Murphy Houston. Hi, it's Melissa Moore. We're doing a special edition this week on mental health and teen suicide and talking about just the staggering rates that are going on right now here in the state of Colorado. I have three high school teenagers with me this morning. I want to open up reading you something that was published April 14th in the Denver Post. This was from a high school peer. He said, I go to Cherry Creek High School. Two lives have been taken here and another from St. Mary's Academy, all within the past month or so. I knew all three and I was close with two. The number of people coming together to honor those lost and their memories was overwhelming. All I have seen leaves me asking this question constantly. If it means so much to us to lose someone, then why don't we do something before it happens? We've been giving hope with statements such as this won't happen again, then it does. It needs to be a focal point of life to educate and talk about mental health. It shouldn't be a scary or negative topic. Helping out everyone who feels lost or alone or depressed is worth it. And those that have passed already will not die in vain. Good morning, you guys. Good morning. morning. As we know, suicide is, and maybe you didn't know this, but it is the leading cause of death for 10 to 24-year-olds here in the state of Colorado. The Colorado teen suicide rate is twice the national average. And in the past four years, suicide reports have jumped 400%. That number is frightening and it's staggering. And if I'm correct, all three of you have been personally affected by suicide this past year. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. How were you affected? Did you know someone? Was it someone at your school? Um, yeah. So there were two people at my school and then another at a neighboring school that I was pretty close with and went to a middle school with. So... I've had three really recently that affected me pretty heavily. How did you find out about it? One was from a friend and then another email from the school. Um, And then the last one was from a friend as well. What went through your mind when you first heard? Um, It's mostly just disbelief. It's something that you never think is going to happen. And then it happens. And you're stuck thinking, honestly, nothing. It's more, how could I have prevented it? What? could we all have done what were the signs how did we miss the signs and that's the scariest thing is because oftentimes it's very hard to tell and there's a lot of blame placed with it but at the same time like well rather blame on yourself that you can experience but it's a lot of just shock and awe mostly you said when you first heard you thought nothing yeah what do you mean by that it's For the first few seconds, when I got the news, you kind of just don't feel anything. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. But it just takes you, it takes me aback so hard that I just didn't know what to feel. Because part of me was thinking, how could this person do this? I just talked to them the other day. And then part of me saying, there's no way and I'm in complete denial. Mm -hmm. So you're conflicted and and then in the end, it's just kind of... I guess not necessarily nothing but confusion. Makes sense. What about you? It's disbelief, like you said. And it's very hard to comprehend what's going on. And especially when you have known this person for almost your entire life. It's hard to just imagine them gone in a split second. And you can't really understand everything that's going on and comprehend it. And 
it is disbelief and then it is the guilt and the sadness and the anger about everything that you could have done beforehand to prevent it that you kind of put all that on yourself at some point. So do you feel like you take it on like a responsibility for why couldn't I have saved this person? In a way, yes. I feel like it's very hard to not make yourself feel a little bit guilty and be angry at yourself in some way because you knew this person and you knew that you had some thought about what was going on and you didn't do enough to stop it. Do you still feel that way today? Parts of me, yes, but not as much as I did in the first week or two. But I still feel like I could have done more and everybody could have done more before it happened instead of taking action afterwards. Um, so, yeah, personally for me, um, one of the kids that committed suicide at my school was we were really close. Um, like I would call him one of my best friends and we shared everything with each other. So just like when I found out that he did this to himself, I was just like I talked to him like four hours ago, like how could this have happened? So, yeah, as they said, just like disbelief and just not wanting to like at, like come to like the conclusion that like this actually happened and I couldn't do anything about it. I know you guys talk about feeling guilty and wishing you would have seen the signs and wishing you had done something. Some of the things I've heard from other people who've dealt with it, that they've been angry, mm-hmm. angry at the person for leaving them. Mm-hmm. Did you guys go through that at all? I was, I would say frustrated is almost better. Um, I get the anger part because I've seen and been friends with people that have been angry about it because it's something that someone so close to you and a huge part of your life could just be taking from you like that and that's the thing like part of you is just gone and it's hard to cope with that especially when you were talking to them four hours ago or you saw them that the morning before and the fact that they're no longer with us that's the angry part because mm-hmm. we all, you know them and you respect them and you love them. What about you? Like I get where the frustration and stuff comes with and like I definitely experienced that with like my personal like like relationship with that person. But um, it was more, I don't even know if there's a correct word to like call it because like being a person who's dealt with mental health issues, like I know how it feels to like not want to tell anyone how you're feeling because you're scared of like what will happen or what other people will say. I don't know. I think frustrating was the right word to use that they just like didn't verbalize what they were feeling and didn't verbalize they were in that much pain. Well, speaking about mental health issues, there was, I think, a stigma for a long time that if you suffered from mental health issues, you didn't talk about it. And even in my generation, you know, just until recently, women started talking about postpartum depression. And I know I've suffered from anxiety for years but would never say anything and now I will openly tell somebody do you feel like for teenagers there is still a stigma with mental health most definitely from the time I was born or at least from the time I can remember until now it's always been a negative thing to have mental health issues Mm -hmm. when it's not a good thing or a bad thing it just is it's a part of a person even for a limited amount of time if it's not a lifelong thing But it needs to be something that we can all talk about and share because a 400% increase in suicide, what do you want to call it? Uh, Just reports. Reports, yeah. yeah. If there's that much of an increase because people are scared to talk about it or people think of it as a negative thing, that's not the way it should be. If we're open to talking about it, if we're open to educating about it, then that rate should decrease now. And 
if we all come together and try and find a way to make it a something that you can talk about with your friends or family or even a stranger, then I feel like the world would become a better place. I agree with you. Do you feel like your school, your peer group is open to talking about mental health issues? I feel like there are some efforts to try and get that done, but I feel like there's some more that might be able to be done. Where do you feel like that more should come from? Is that is that more effort needing to come from the school, from the administrators, from the peers? I feel like everybody. I feel like there's some programs that are being put into the school by the administrators and the and the board that help, but I feel like the students and your people you have everyday interactions with, I feel like they can help out too and really push for programs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like now it's being pushed by the school only. If the students were a part of it or maybe more teachers, I feel like it would be pretty good. Would it help you all as teens to hear more teachers and more adults, whether it be in the media, whether it be celebrities, whoever it may be, talk about their mental health issues and help get rid of that stigma? Um, yeah, I know I have certain adults in my life that I definitely look up to. And when I went through the like very hard part of my personal like mental health, like hearing from the close those close adults in my life, like, oh, I've dealt with this when I was your age, too, or I still deal with this. It definitely helped me get through it. And I don't know. I just feel like even not just those adults, but like the people around you, like the peers, because I don't know if like a lot of the high school students like understand or like realize it but the majority of the people that I know and the majority of the people that I've heard from do like suffer with anxiety depression mental health things like that so they just like people need to know that they're not alone I also feel like there's like a fear of feeling less than and rejected and if we teach these kids that there are adults and like celebrities and pop culture figures that also suffer from these illnesses it'll make you feel like you're not less than and you're not excluded. You need to be able to see that you're not alone in this and that you're not the only one suffering. And so you don't feel that fear and rejection. If I was building this a structure and I was going to do a pillar, it's like, okay, let's talk about mental health. Let's take away the stigma of having a mental health disease. The other one I wonder about is what is causing teenagers to take their own life and is it everyday stresses is there something going on where you're feeling this need to be perfect we know that we've got mental health but then what is this other pillar that is going on that maybe as parents as adults we're not realizing what you're going through i feel like it's so much there's so much pressure involved in teenagers everyday lives whether it's the pressure to be perfect because you see everybody else on instagram or whether it's the pressure to get good grades because of your parents or your teachers, or it's the pressure to be perfect in your sport or in your like out-of-school activity from your peers and your parents. And to- like out-of-school activities and athletics and the arts can become so toxic because you're competing constantly. And there's so much pressure to be number one and to win that I feel like it gets to a lot of people. And that's just added on top of the tests and the grades and the mm-hmm. homework and the parent pressure and the like, dating so, dating. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Have the perfect relationship, even yep. though you're only a 17 year old person. Like, And you use the word perfect a lot. Yes. Where is the pressure to be perfect? Where is that coming from? You don't want to disappoint anybody. You don't want to disappoint your parents. And so you have to be perfect for them. I don't think it's as much you have to be perfect for yourself, but you have to prove that you're 
worth it and perfect to everybody around you through social media or your grades or whatever. That uh, perfectionism a lot of times can be influenced by parents or whoever it may be, but a lot of it's personal too. For mm-hmm. me, it was really personal. My entire life, I've been a perfectionist. I've been haunted by it, blessed by it too. But I've, in my past, I've struggled with mental health, with my mental health. And there comes to a point where you have to get the help you need and you have to reach out. And for me, it was just learning and understanding that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to talk about your issues. It's okay to make mistakes. And for a long time, for me, and I'm sure for many others, if you're not perfect, then it's not okay. If it's not perfect, then it's not acceptable to anybody else. And that's an internal battle that we need to overcome and like, again, reach out and get help. How do we as parents and adults help reinforce this, that we don't want the perfection, we don't expect perfection, and you don't need to be perfect for yourselves either? For me, I don't know. I've had some experiences where if I'll get a bad grade like, or if I don't do good in soccer or stuff like that, my parents and like the people around me, it's that like, it's that fight with them that like, oh, you should have done better on this test. You should have gotten that better grade where like, in my opinion, it should be okay. Like you didn't do your best on this test or in this game. So like, how do we help you? How do we make it better? And I mean, when people say to me, oh, like your mistakes don't define you or your mistakes, like you learn from your mistakes, like hearing that so much kind of just makes it like not mean anything Hmm. so instead of saying like things like that like i don't know maybe the what can you do better or how can i help you like that just the support from the people around you definitely makes you or personally me feel like i'm like worth actually the effort i feel like it's a societal mindset that (sighs) is it society pushing to perfection in a way is it social media feeding it oh most definitely I feel like social media is a huge aspect of it. Everybody's competing all the time because of social media. I mean, it used to be competition was for sports and academics. Not much outside of that. Maybe your career. Now it's 24-7. Like you're constantly competing with everybody for whether it's followers, likes, the fanciest lifestyle, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, That's a huge competitive influencer. Well, that's what I wondered because between my generation and yours, we had some of the same stuff. The parents, the dating, the athletics, the grades. Social media is the big difference. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wonder because we had bullies too. And a friend of mine pointed out, was like, but you know what? You could go home and you were done with a bully for the day. And now that's not the case, is it? Because the bullying can go right on with social media. And I, I can't imagine how hard that is for your generation to never get that break. Do you feel like you have that safe spot where you can just escape from all of that? A lot of people are like, well, why don't you just turn the phone off or why don't you just delete the app? But when you're having these people say these like terrible things to you and like people are commenting on your Instagram posts, like bad things about you, like it's hard to just turn it off and it's hard to just get away from it because it's always there. Like even if you turn the phone off, someone texts you and when you turn your phone back on, it's there. Mm Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's really hard to get away from it. I feel like it's kind of impossible to escape unless you it takes a very strong person to make the choice to not be involved in this. And then when you do that, you feel like you're left out and you don't you're not in the loop of everything that's happening. 
on on social media and online. But sometimes you just need to take a break. Like I've gotten to points where I've deleted all of my social media apps because I just needed a breather. And I'll delete it for three days and then be like, oh, I'm missing something. And I redownload them Mm -hmm. because I feel like I'm not part of society as much as I was before because I'm the only one that doesn't have these things. And even though like a breather can help, it also hurts you. Like you can't get away from it. It's Mm -hmm. impossible to escape. It's interesting you said that because I was reading this uh, report from the Colorado Attorney General and the Denver Post released some of the findings in a January 3rd article from this year. And one of the, we talked about the pressures and that's one of the things they said as far as the Colorado and teen suicide rate, just what you said, the pressures, extracurricular activities, the anxiety those pressures bring. But it also said social media and the pressure and the comparison and the perfectionism of social media. And the fact, and I thought this was the interesting point, that parents are not as savvy with social media, so they're not quite sure how to help you navigate that. Would you guys agree? They might have some form of social media, but it's not the same. And even if they do have Instagram, they're following their generation. They're not following and liking posts from my high school or from my like age gap. And it's insane to think that they don't understand and like they never will understand fully and it's they can't help sometimes that's why i think having peers that you can go to as well as adults is so important because if you have a strong set of adults that you can talk to for certain things and then a strong set of peers for other things it just helps so much because peers won't understand the things that adults understand and adults won't understand the things that peers understand that's a really good point let's say you've got that strong group and i would hope that for everybody it's not always the case of peers and adults to talk to. There are also resources out there. Are you guys aware of those resources where if you knew of somebody who was considering suicide or you were concerned about somebody or you yourself were having thoughts, would you know who to talk to, where to talk, phone numbers, text? Do you have that available to you? Since like all these like suicide ratings are going up and things like that, it's definitely become more of a point of like, how, like who to contact and where to contact these people but it gets to the point where you don't know if you should because if it's if you're dealing with a friend who you think might be thinking of suicide or things like that you don't want to report them and be like and then have them come back to you and say oh you reported me like how could you do that I'm so mad at you and then you lose that friend and then it gets to that point where if you're like if you're thinking you're not worthy to the point where you want to commit suicide then you're not going to reach out to somebody to try to help yourself because you don't think you're worth it. How do we help? And I'm not just saying me as an adult. I'm saying all of us as this community, you guys included. How do we help then? Um, yeah, so definitely since like mental health and suicide has become such a popular subject, I've noticed that even in the just like most of the people that I hang around, we talk about it more, like even just between us. And throughout the school, like we've talked about it more. And it just I think that personally makes it easier to get help and talk about what I'm struggling. That is one thing that I learned in doing interviews this past year about suicide is that if you suspect somebody is considering suicide, saying something to them, it's not going to push them over the edge. That it's okay to say something to them, to ask them that question directly. Would that kind of knowledge help you guys to know that? Yeah, because saying something about it might frankly sum off for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you look back at it and you think someone cares. It happened to me. What did? Being called out. 
for not necessarily called out, but someone talking to me about me being sad for the past few days or the past week or month. Um, and it was eye opening for me, at least, because you look at it and it's showing you that someone cares. And then maybe it happens two or three times in the next week or so. That's two or three people that care about me. And that's the biggest thing because it shows that you're not alone. We all care for you. And it's not something you have to go through in solitude. What do you guys think? I think that with if people reach out, it makes the, the person more willing to reach out themselves to get help. Because if they think that nobody cares, they're not going to reach out. But if they see that this group of people cares, then they will reach out to get their own help as well as these people getting them help. And I think it's really important that everybody just supports each other. Because if we all feel alone, nothing's going to get solved ever. At what point do you say something to an adult? Do you say something to either a teacher, a parent? What does it take for you guys when you notice something going on with a friend to say something? Because you talked about being afraid of losing that friendship or making that friend angry and upset with you. So how do we cross that bridge to saying something? You have times where their dog just died and they're sad for the next few days. But then you have times where it's consistent and it happens over and over and over again. And it's a long-term thing. And if you feel scared at all, that's when you should do it. Even if it's a tiny little part of you that's like, maybe this is happening. Maybe something serious is going on, that's when you should say something. Who would you say something to? Anybody. Whether it's a hotline, I can't name the number off the top of my head, but I know mm-hmm. to look, at least look it up. Their parents, if you can, your parents, anybody that you at least trust. And yeah, like even besides like adults and hotlines, like the people you hang out with and the people you know that like that person hangs out with, tell them, be like, I've noticed whoever's name is having a really bad day or a really tough time lately like let's go do something for them let's go out let's you know invite them over like let's have a get together anything like that to like let that person know you have people around you that care about you and like want to help you and part of it to me is that i feel like we're all living in a very fast world right now like conversations seem to go by quicker we want to do this thing and then the next thing and just keep going to keep ourselves busy or at least not bored and I feel like that kind of contributes because if you say something to your friend and they and you're like I've noticed you've been down recently what's going on they're like nothing I'm okay and you just say all right fine Mm -hmm. that's not the correct way of handling it you should say okay well I just wanted to check in because I've noticed this because that at least puts in their mind you know that you care for them right instead of just saying yeah all right and I think this is great, but you're talking about some big life coping things that I've got to tell you, adults don't always know how to do. And I love the fact that you guys are so aware of what needs to happen. What I'm wondering is, does mental health need to be talked about at school more? Should there be a class, an assembly? I don't I don't know what the answer would be. What would help that the school could do to help you guys have those conversations? I definitely think the idea of a class is really helpful. And even just an assembly where like, Maybe the school gets in a couple of professionals to talk about like even the like chemical reactions and stuff within like your body so that you understand like, oh, like this is what happens when like I'm feeling depressed and like have a bad day or something like that. And like even if it's just a class and those and like a certain amount of people have it, like then those people share it with their friends and then 
their friends share it with their friends and their friends share like share it with their parents and it just keeps going on so then the words and maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea that everybody has it yeah that everybody is equipped with the same knowledge i feel like it goes bigger than school because schools can do as much as they can and depending on the school that affects 500 kids mm-hmm. and if you i i want this to get bigger and bigger just because i feel like it's more of a government thing or some big organization like say microsoft invests in this that's what would huge. they invest in when you say this what i don't is know this? create a organization for awareness or education something like that or maybe all of it mm-hmm. awareness education yep. mental health because it needs to get out there that it's an epidemic almost at this point mm-hmm. because i know that it it was not like this 30 years ago it wasn't and i can tell you that it wasn't it happened but it was not rampant no not like this it just needs to be in my opinion just needs to be like pushed by a a figure of some high point in society Mm -hmm. because that will get it out there it'll be i feel like further accepted oftentimes people start talking about it when it's too late and so in my opinion it needs to be a topic that's talked about in every single household that's talked about from a young age for kids and it doesn't need to start in high school because mental health you doesn't start in high school it's like forever and you can't pinpoint when to start teaching this so i feel like it should be taught throughout this so like throughout everybody's lifetime Mm -hmm. not just in high school and that's a bigger conversation as a society and as a community that i think we're finally because i will tell you this we did not have the suicide rates that your generation does but we also didn't talk about mental health And it was very different, but that doesn't mean it was okay back then, because I think as a society and as a community, we we need to have these mental health conversations. I was just going to say, like, you started to touch base on this, but teaching it, like, in your household, I feel like even personally, I feel like it's hard to talk to to my parents and to, like, my really close relatives about, like, my mental health and, like, what I'm feeling, if I'm having a bad day, how that makes me feel. And I feel like if it were brought up more when I was little... I might have been more comfortable to talk about it and not have it get to like a really bad point. Like going back to how relevant it is now and how it didn't used to be. I don't want to say it didn't need to be talked about it, but it wasn't as much of a pressing issue as it used to be. And so I feel like parents now, they're not really equipped to talk about it until they're educated about it too. Because as much as us students, kids need to learn about it, and learn to talk about it, I feel like that's a societal issue going up until the day we die. Mm -hmm. I just hope that our generation will be able to tell our children that it's okay to talk about it, that we need to talk about it, we want to hear it. Because so many times we're told we need to talk about it, you need to talk about it, you'll feel okay. But we want to hear it. Mm -hmm. That should be, I feel like that should be a big change too. We, We want to talk about it, we want to hear about it, we want to help you and not we need to. Mm, maybe just, just starting those conversations like that mm-hmm. at home. Yeah, it changes the meaning of it to me. Um, you started to talk about like parents not being equipped. And I really like I really think that's a big part of the issue. There's parenting books and there's parenting classes within those parenting books and parenting classes. Why don't they have like ways to help your child with mental health or having bad days and how to cope with that? So if it's incorporated into those like smallest things. Mm hmm. Like, it can make a huge difference. Like, oftentimes when I feel upset about something or I've had a really bad day, I'll, like, 
just kind of like freak out and I'll be like I just like need to like let it all out and I'll hear from one or both of my parents oh this is like not a big deal you don't need to cry about it maybe I do right okay. and I feel like it's just understanding more do you feel like they're judging you in and way, your feelings yes because today although a lot of people hide their feelings I feel like it's a lot more valid to put your feelings out there mm. than it used to be and they don't get that as much So you want to be able to just feel what you feel and have parents, if I hear both of you right, all three of you right, meet you where you are and acknowledge what you're feeling and what you're saying and open that door for conversation without telling you how you should feel. Am I am I hearing that part right? Yeah. So with my dad, when I was younger, a lot of the time it was, oh, suck it up. Like, you don't need to cry about that or like stuff like that. And I don't know. I'm just I've recently learned that he like he struggles with anxiety a lot. And maybe he, maybe that's because when he was little, he didn't have that place to like that safe place to just cry or just scream and let it out. And if I didn't like realize personally that I need that safe place to cry and I need that safe place to scream and just let it all out, then maybe when I have kids, I could like, give that to them mm-hmm. and give that to the friends that I have now. I was going to say, I think all three of you are better equipped than generations before you. And unfortunately, maybe it's been born out of tragedy. But I think we always talk about your generation is going to be the generation to change things. And I really do believe that. And listening to all three of you today, I believe that wholeheartedly because you have a grasp on reality that I don't know if generations before you had that same reality. Before we go, anything you would like to let people know? Adolescence and parents both need to restrict the use of social media. That's the one thing that I feel like can make the biggest difference. Okay. Maybe not the biggest difference, but it'll make a huge impact because that's where so many of the pressures in today's society come from. And in turn, they just, I feel like they live more fulfilled lives. I certainly did. So really as parents, even if you tell us that you're upset about it, you don't want to, we need to make you unplug. Mm-hmm. And we're going to reject it. Of course you are. So hard. <laughs> but I think as adults, happen. we reject it. We mm-hmm. tell ourselves these same things. And some parents recently told me, or adults rather, told me that, they feel the same exact thing on Facebook. Facebook pr- presents that pressure. And to them, I say, get off Facebook so much. Because the generations before ours, it's Facebook. Mm-hmm. For us, it's Instagram. Right. It's the same concept. So it has the same effect for everybody. I always say Facebook, Instagram, it's the highlight reel. Mm-hmm. It's the highlights of your life. What did you want to add? Yeah, I also think like with social media, you said it's the highlights. And like from those highlights, if we're always looking at Instagram, always looking at Snapchat, always looking at Facebook, we don't get that reality check that we need. Mm-hmm. Like, here's that reality check. Not everyone's perfect. Not everyone has this perfect life where they go on nice vacations and where they have the perfect body. Like, not everybody has that. And like, if you don't, you're not the only one that doesn't have that. I appreciate all three of you being here this morning. I appreciate your honesty and just the vulnerability and the things that you've shared. I'm Melissa Moore. Murph is going to be in next talking with mental health professionals. Thank you for spending part of your Sunday morning with me. Now we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. Hey, thanks, Melissa, and thanks to all the young people who came in today to share their feelings. It's a special edition of Mile High Magazine. I'm Murphy Houston, and as we continue, I'm joined by uh, several folks that will continue our discussion. Uh, Sherry Cole, who's the Colorado Area Director of American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I've known Sherry, gosh, Sherry, a long time. Oh, gosh, about eight years more? Probably since we just started. Yeah. This whole thing. Also joining us is Matt Wettenkamp, who's the outreach manager for the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family Clinic at CU Anschutz. Matt, welcome in. Thank you. 
You're right downstairs in our building, aren't you? Yeah, not a far trip for me. How I've never seen you before. Uh, sneak in the back hex. Aha, uh-huh, I get it. <laughs> Fine. And then from the National Alliance on Mental Illness is Jason Hopkins, who's the president, CEO of, they call that NAMI. Is that uh, right, Jason? Correct. I'm uh, the president and CEO of the NAMI and Arapahoe Douglas Counties affiliate. So how does that work? Is it just those two counties or are more involved? No, that's a great question. So NAMI is a national organization that has representation in every state. Each state has a state chapter, and then um, the work actually happens at the affiliate level. So in Colorado, we have 14 affiliates, and I lead the largest affiliate, um, geographically speaking, in Colorado. And who do you basically work with? Who, who are you serving in that area? So our clients are typically loved ones and family members that are struggling with mental illness or a mental health condition. So a question I wanted to ask, since I'm starting with you, and sure. you deal more with the on the mental illness issue, and we'll spread this question around. Does mental health discriminate? Is that an issue for everybody? Um, I would like to say that it doesn't, but I think it does. I, I think that we still don't have a way to differentiate mental health from physical health. And the reality is, is we all have mental health. If you have a brain, you have mental health. Um, and, and the unfortunate thing is, is we still live in a world that when you put mental in front of anything, whether it's mental health or mental illness, um, you see the blinds come down on people's faces. So really having conversations like this are important to differentiate that we all have mental health and we should be talking about it. So you're saying it's good to get it out in the open and talk about it, not just keep hiding it like we have for how many years? Well, really, forever. Forever. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Uh, Matt, do you agree with that? Do you think uh, mental health does not discriminate? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, this is something that everybody struggles with, whether, you know, we do a good job of talking about it or not. Um, The ups and downs of how you're feeling and, and, you know, and how things are going mentally. Um, Yeah, it, it affects everyone. Uh, and uh, like Jason said, we, we talk about it and think about it differently than we do uh, other kinds of health. I agree with that, I think. And Sherry, how about you? How, what do you think? Oh, I can say ditto to everything that they've already stated. And I think what's discriminatory is the fact that we have so much stigma around the topic in general. And we shouldn't. We should be treating our mental health as equally and as important as our physical health. Because that's an easy thing to talk about. If you fell out of your chair and broke your arm, we wouldn't ignore you and go, let's not talk about it. Maybe you'll feel better. Yeah, he just fell down and broke his arm. Right. And we're still on the air. Yeah, I mean, well, that kind that of thing. Yeah, would be a little yeah. silly, right? Yeah. We would be wanting to get more information, more data, and, and we would know we're not the person that can maybe help fix your arm, but we can get you to that help. And that's something that we can all be part of in terms of when it comes to mental health and losing the stigma in our society and what we can do to just improve overall circumstances for many of us. So why do you think we don't talk about it more? Why do we hide mental health? That's a great question. I think so many people are still afraid of it because of that stigma and that shame and, oh, gosh, what if? And we have this, you know, perception that everyone needs to be not perfect, but that, you know, all our lives are all good. But, you know, if you peel back the onion layers and take a look, all of us have something. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if we normalize it and make it okay, we lose that stigma, then uh, if we make mental health um, as important as, as, you know, again, physical health, but make it part of daily conversation – and it's like it's not that it's it is a big deal, but to make it not be a big deal to talk about would, would be huge. We'd, we'd come so far. Well, so many other health issues, I'm sure, started that way and they begin to emerge and people talk about them and they they, they get on board and, and it helps solve some of the problems, I think. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Jason, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do wholeheartedly. Um, I also believe I think uh, the challenge that we have with talking about mental health today is you think about the conversations we have in mental health. They come from scary. They come from sad. They come from trauma. Um, so we are desensitized to talking about things that we may struggle with that don't look quite like that. Um, 
I think one of the challenges, you know, in a, in a broader context that we really struggle with is we don't have a language that allows us as walk-a-day human beings to feel comfortable talking about this. Um, because if we're struggling with something that may not be sad or tragic or scary, um, we get stuck in that, well, my problem is not as bad as somebody else's or it could always be worse. I think a lot of this is about language. We just don't have the right language yet that allows us to more generally speak about our own struggle. And as Matt said, we're all struggling. Do you think we're coming over that fear? I mean, starting to have a language that you just said that we can talk about and share and and everybody can feel comfortable talking about it. Is that going to happen, Matt? What do you think? I see Uh, you shaking your head. No, (laughs) yeah, uh, not right now. Um, I think right now, um, you know, imagine you get together with a friend for lunch or coffee. How easy is it to talk about, you know, the flu that you had last week, or you know, whatever whatever physical ailment you know is is you know going on with you or your family. But we don't do that if we're talking about you know uh, struggling with mental health, you know, depression, whatever it might be. Um, There's some there's some hurdle we need to get over where. Uh, it doesn't say anything negative about you as a person if you have a physical ailment that you have to go to the doctor for. Right. But we have it in our minds or we operate as though it says something negative about you if you have a mental health ailment that you need to go to a doctor for. That that, that shows some sort of weakness in you um, that you should be embarrassed to talk about. Uh, and we need to get past that. Yeah, and how do we do that? You must have some thought on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, doing things like what we're doing right now. Um, with my job on a daily basis, is what I'm out doing is talking to – uh, veterans, military, their families about seeking mental health care and what it looks like, what it feels like, um, the sorts of things that could be um, helped or fixed by it, um, you know, what you should be looking for when you go and meet a doctor for the first time and the sort of connections that you want to try and have and uh, the sorts of things that they can help you with. Um, I, you know, all of that is, is you know, we need to spend more time digging into and understanding. Now, that's Matt Wettenkamp, who's the outreach manager of the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family Clinic at CUN Shoots. And talk about your clinic a little bit. Matt, what are you doing over there, working yep. with the veterans? Yep, absolutely. So um, it's a partnership between Cohen Veterans Network nationally and University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus here locally. Um, it's We're an outpatient mental health clinic. We serve post-9-11 veterans and their families. Um, and kind of what we try to do is remove a lot of the barriers that veterans and their families might, might face when it comes to um, – seeking or receiving health care. So we we've, we're able to uh, remove a lot of the restrictions um, on eligibility that, that veterans and their families might face elsewhere. So uh, we can work with, again, we work with family members. <clears throat> That's family as the veteran defines it. So it doesn't have to be like a blood or a legal relative. It could be a best friend, a roommate, uh, anybody as part of that support network around the veteran. Uh, no restrictions on discharge status, no restrictions on combat or non-combat service. Um, really, um, one day in uniform post 9-11, you and your entire family are eligible for care. Uh, we can do our care via telehealth. So we can do it virtually. Uh, we can provide transportation to and from the clinic. We can provide child care for mom or dad while they're you know, receiving care. Um, uh, so we've got, we, we're trying to remove all those barriers that people typically run into when, when seeking or, or receiving health care. Well, it sounds like you're pretty well advanced and uh, really have a game plan going there. It's it's going really well. Um, we've been open for about a year now. We recently celebrated our one-year anniversary. Um, and, yeah, it's been really, really great to see uh, how many veterans and family members have, have been able to come through our doors in the last year that, again, really wouldn't have been eligible for care elsewhere, whether it was because they were uninsured or you know weren't eligible for VA care. Uh, so it's been great to see. Is there a lot of those that don't have VA care? They're not eligible for VA care? Sure. So um, a lot of veterans, um, if you have uh, dishonorable or other than honorable discharge, uh, are not eligible for VA uh, health care at all. 
Uh, and then there are some um, there are some um, areas of, of healthcare within the system that um, you have to uh, have had combat service or, or certain um, your 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 need for the, for care needs to have come from certain types of incidents to, in, in order to be eligible. Uh, it might not be just kind of life stressors. A decade after your service is not the sort of thing uh, that you might be eligible for uh, in certain places where uh, you would be um, at our clinic. Sounds interesting. Keep up that good work, and we'll talk more about that. But I want to talk to Sherry. Sherry Cole is a Colorado area director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Talk about that, Sherry. What is that? What is that organization? Well, we're a national organization that was founded in 1987. We are a voluntary health organization that gives those affected by suicide literally a nationwide community that's empowered by research, education, and advocacy so that people can take action against this leading cause of death. We um, strive to create a culture that's smart about mental health and um, by bringing change um, with some core strategies that are around funding scientific research. We're the largest private funder um, of the cause. Mm -hmm. And we strive to educate the public about mental health and suicide prevention. We also advocate for public policies around mental health and suicide prevention. And a big thing that we do is we support survivors of suicide loss and those affected by suicide. So our mission statement is to you know, to save lives and bring hope to those affected by suicide. And it's a growing number. It's a lot of us. It is. And it's all ages. It is all ages because we all have brains. Right. <laughs> we talked about that earlier a little bit. So, Well, some of my yeah. kids might not think I have that. But, uh, yeah, well, we all have brains. I thought that about them sometimes, too. So. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> no doubt about it. Well, tell us about some of the things you might be doing locally here in Colorado. I know it's a national operation, but you're in charge of the state. I support the volunteers that do all the great work here in the state. We have about 100 people nationally that make up AFSP. About half of us are in the field. I work from a home office, but we founded the AFSP Colorado chapter in 2012, right. and uh, we are busy year long. And we're not just about fundraising. You know, any organization has to have funding to move forward, and you know, we have to put gas in the car to make things happen. Sure. So we're we do a lot of events and activities that aren't just about fundraising, but they're bringing people together and encouraging them to know that they're not alone. And that they can honor loved ones lost, but they can also be there if they've been struggling and need support. Uh, many times we have um, out of the darkness uh, campus and community walks around sure. the state. Uh, campus walks typically are in the spring. Community walks are in the fall. We always strive to have local resources regarding um, mental health, behavioral health care. You know, what's, what's in someone's community? What's in their backyard? We also do um, International Survivors of Suicide Lost Day. Uh, we show a new documentary each year. Uh, it's in November. Last year we hosted nine sites in Colorado. We have a hike for hope coming up on Father's Day at Red Rocks. Right. We do volunteer orientation and training. We have all kinds of educational options that chapters can get involved with, either help deliver or to partner, collaborate with other um, groups around the state, different communities at different levels, so that we can leverage the funding, you know, that we've um, received from supporters <clears throat> to truly empower our communities and not really wait for someone else to come and fix a problem. You're very active. Yes. And don't you do that big walk at Coors Field in September? Yes, in we're September? going to the Denver Metro yeah, out of no, the darkness community a... walk. So that's going to be one of, uh, right now we have eight walks targeted this fall, but it's one of the biggest ones in the country. Certainly is the biggest one in Colorado. Last year we had about 4,500 in attendance. This year our goal is about $340,000 to be raised. We could do that because I know one of our, our stations here at Bonneville, which uh, covers all these stations we're on right now, we're going to be involved with that, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. We've been advertising with you guys for a while, and we appreciate the support. And you're on, you're on our staff and others help 
produce that walk. Well, we got to get that word out for sure. We'll go back to uh, Jason Hopkins, who's the president and CEO of NAMI. Did I pronounce that right? Should it's I? NAMI. NAMI. But Why I'll, am I saying I'll, NAMI? I don't know. I won't correct you since you asked, though. Well, feel free. <laughs> I mean, jump right in here. So let's talk more about why we're not talking about mental health. That seems to be your area of real expertise. And I've often thought about that because mental health, I think, goes beyond suicide prevention. There's so many issues out there. We talk about these, unfortunately, these people that get guns and do crazy things. You know, what's going on? Why, why can't we get more involved? Right. I, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. I, I think it's two things. I think it's we don't have a language that allows us to talk about it. And I think, as Sherry touched on earlier, um, the stigma around mental health um, and talking about it is still really something that is preventative but preventable. Um, I think having conversations like this are really important. You know, At the end of the day, for us to make a difference in shifting or shaping um, how we want to do anything differently, it's going to take some real action and leadership to really pave the way for us to talk about mental health in a different way. Um, unfortunately, we live in a world that the, um, you know, not a criticism of the media, but often um, how we talk about mental health in the media is stigmatizing and damaging and certainly doesn't promote people um, to feel more comfortable to talk about what they're struggling with. So um, I do consider this as an epidemic. You know, it's something we're all dealing with. Um, and I think we, we t- collectively have to find a way to do better together. You brought up a good point, though, about the media stigmatizing the thought of mental health. We're on the media right now. Right. And a lot of media people are listening. What would you tell them? How to improve it? Don't stigmatize people with it. Right. And I think that's a that's a great aim, you know, as a starting point to to make it more personal. um, I think, you know, if there's a way for you to connect with somebody about your own struggle, doesn't have to be your deepest, darkest secret. But, you know, if you've struggled with anxiety or depression, like, let's start talking about it. Um, I have a pretty public personal history with mental health myself. I've been very vocal about it. Um, I've shared my own story on, you know, several hundred stages at this point. And um, I am always amazed after I stand up and share something personal about my own struggle, the things that people will say to me um, in response, really, um, you know, feeling like they have a, a, a past to sort of bear their soul, so to speak, and share what they're struggling with. Um, I think that that kind of connection is really a foundation for us changing this. So, you know, my single word of advice is if, if you can and, and it feels appropriate to you to share more about what's real for you. Um, I think people connect more to real experience. Well, you just saw we had a bunch of young people in here talking, and they're very honest about their feelings, as as you well know, because you work with a lot of them. So how do we get parents the resources to talk about their kids about mental health so they don't feel ashamed in front of their friends? So I think that's a great question, and and we've talked with youth a lot lately. And and the thing that I take away from talking about youth that is absolutely refreshing, um, and especially the teenagers here today, um, is they'll tell you what they're struggling with. If if you engage them in, in a thoughtful um, way, they will tell you what they're struggling with. Um, and, and the thing that I take away from it, it and it's easy to put the, the blame back on parents, and I do think there's a responsibility for parents. But the fact of the matter is, is, is we, again, don't have a language that allows us to connect. Youth today are different than people of my generation or your generation, and oh, how we yeah. connect with each other is different. Um, the thing that I've observed in this work is the word that comes up a lot is perfect or perfectionism. And unfortunately, we have a generation, and I don't think it's just youth. I think adults are guilty of it, too. We are determining our worth and self-esteem from a highlight reel on social media. Exactly. You know, we're yeah. all putting the most perfect version of ourself out there, and our youth today, and adults included, 
are comparing their lives to those highlight reels. And I think that's a really dangerous trap. Um, you know, so I don't know what the solution is, but again, I think it comes back to getting more connected with each other, but I think it starts with language. We have to start talking and, and it can't all be scary and sad, you know, know, bad things do happen, but there's a lot of good stuff if you look around. Well, Sherry, I know you deal with a a lot of young people. How do we turn social media into a positive? Because it is a negative. It can be very negative. It can be a negative. It doesn't mean it has to always be negative, though. No, no. There are so many great organizations, behavioral health care, mental health care, um, physical health care, but it should all be integrated. And we see that in commercials on television even. So many. So there's so much more coming in terms of it's okay to talk about not being okay and don't have, you don't have to be perfect. And I think, you know, um, I grew up before I got into nonprofit world, um, in a technology world. Um, and so, you know, we're all guilty of it a little bit in terms of having way too much technology. And it's good to unplug and to connect and to have the dialogue. You know, as Jason says, I mean, we need to talk about this. We literally have some you know, some of our materials to talk about. They're labeled Talk Saved Lives. Yes. And to understand, you know, what somebody might be going through and how to bring up, bro- you know, broach the subject. Um, one of the things that we had recently was a campus walk at Arapahoe High School, which is two weekends ago. And we were talking about youth. Um, I'm hopeful. It was very sad. The reason why we had 1,200 participants at a campus walk that we um, started with the fundraising goal of $12,000. We raised that goal six times online before we got to the day of the walk. Wow. Currently, it raised over $75,000. So that sounds great. Here's the thing. I say always, it, it's it's the crappiest reason why. We've had so many youth losses in the metro area and beyond in our whole state. Sure. We're number 11 in the country. The fact that so many young people came and their adults around them, not just families, which is great. We, we need them there too. But um, school counselors, um, district folks, um, we had at least eight different high schools represented at that walk. And what that tells us and looking at that sea of young faces and those supporting them is that, you know, as Jason said, they, they, they know a lot. They talk to each other, right? Well, they sure do. And they're hungry for information. And we're positive that it, there's a paradigm shift that's right, happening. And right. I don't want to make it just generational because I'm probably one of the older ones in the room here, too. But, you know, we <laughs> didn't used to talk about this before. And they're not afraid to. They're, they're okay talking with each other. But they're hungry for information, for support, for knowledge. And what does that look like? And And that gets back to that connection piece. And it doesn't always have to be on social media yeah. when they come together and they learn and we can help them spend more literally face time, then I think that's going to have a whole lot more positive outcomes. So Matt, when you deal with the veterans, is this a similar story? Do veterans get into the social media or is there a different world for them? Uh, I, I think there's probably a lot of similarities, maybe a few differences, but those are just more maybe culturally the military and veteran culture of things. Um, but otherwise it is all similar. Um, we have this idea of, and again, going to the social media thing, we, we see what everybody else is up to and, and it looks awesome. So what's wrong with us that we don't, we don't feel like those people look like in their, their Instagram and their Facebook posts? And, and there must be something wrong with us then that, that we're not feeling like that and looking like that. Um, so that, that is definitely you know, part of it. I think a big thing that I talk about or, or think about a lot, and I'd be interested to hear what, what Jason has to say to this. It sounds like we're on the same, on the same page, but... Um, you know, it's this idea, um, what I talk to people a lot about is, you know, we're not the best judges of what's going on in our own brains, right? Like, why do I feel what I feel? Why do I think what I think? We're not the best judges of that. Mental health professionals are, though. They understand how the human mind works, why we think what we think, why we feel what we feel. And they can help us unpack that from an objective place rather than this internal subjective place. Um, And our minds are capable of coming up with all kinds of of interesting theories for why we why we feel as terrible as we do. And that can just be a rabbit hole you go down, whereas, uh, you know, a qualified mental health professional that understands 
why we think what we think and feel what we feel can help you, um, you know, see yourself, you know, in, in a more objective way and, um, you know, unpack what you're thinking and what you're feeling and realize that it's, it is normal. And these are the normal things that, you know, human minds do when we're, especially when you're, when, when trauma is involved. Um, and I think that kind of normalizing that and viewing it in the same way that, um, you know, you go to a doctor, if you have, you know, any, again, going back to the physical ailments, you have any physical ailments, you know, whether it's a broke from a broken bone to cancer, I don't understand how those things are fixed. Yeah, really. Right? So that's why I go to a doctor so that they can tell me the sorts of things I need to do to fix those physical ailments. And it actually works the same way with your brain. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, that's a big part of the discussion that I try to have out in the community. Jason, in response? Yeah, I think that that's a lot to unpack there. But but let me give you a little different perspective on this. And, and I think Matt's spot on that, you know, if you need support, obviously, mental health professionals are are a great place. Um, the thing that I'm looking at and, and one of the initiatives we've taken on at NAMI ADCO is to start a new organization called the Connection Project, which really aims to meet people where they are. And in the research that we've done um, in starting the Connection Project, what we've realized is that universally stress is a word people will talk about. So Matt had asked about, you know, how do we get people? People connected really to feeling comfortable to go and get treatment if they need it. What I have learned in the, the work and the research that we've done is that's a secondary step. The first step is even recognizing that you're struggling and may need help. Let's be clear. Mental health is not something we are wired just to learn about. Typically, we don't talk about mental health until it hits our home. And even once it's hit our home, we often don't talk about it. So the work at the Connection Project we're doing is really aimed at meeting people where they are. And we focused on that stress-based language, really dialed into the elements of well-being. And the things that we focused on that people will talk about is their health, which includes physical and mental. They'll talk about their career. They'll talk about their money. And they'll talk about their tribe. And the word tribe, when I use that, that's your family, that's your peer group, sure, that's your work group, sure. that's, that's who the people, your people. I think from my perspective, it still comes back to language and we don't have language to connect us yet. I think our obligation as a society is to meet people where they are. We all speak this as professionals, as our as our lexicon that we use day in and day out. But the reality is it's not where anybody starts the conversation. So when you talk about really wanting to make a difference, I think we're going to have to meet people where they are and where they're not is talking about mental health. Good point. And I wanted to get back to Matt a little bit, too, as we kind of switch it here a little bit and talk about, you know, Sherry alluded to it, the suicides that have happened recently with the young people right here in our own backyard. But I know, Matt, on on a level for the veterans, it's big. And I'm curious as to how many. I've heard different numbers. In fact, I had a vet on a couple of weeks ago who admitted to me on this show that before he got help, and I think with you guys, that he had seriously thought about dying by suicide. How many a day? Uh, the numbers, like you said, the numbers vary that you've seen here. Typically, in the you know within the veteran community, the number is twenty two that you hear a lot about. Um, uh, I've heard recent numbers lately that maybe it's closer to twenty um, a day. Or, yeah, a day, twenty to twenty two a day uh, veterans a day um, dying by suicide. Um, far too many. And you have that discussion a lot with the work you're doing with the veterans. Is uh, that come up as a discussion, as a problem, or is that other stories? Um, uh, certainly, yes, we are constantly talking to people and, and helping people who are in crisis and are at that crisis point. Um, and I think that's uh, that's another topic to, to talk about when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention is, um, again, you know, 
beating a dead horse here, t- taking it back to the physical health discussion. But, um, you know, seeking care once you um, are prepared to die by suicide, that's where we've gone so far down the road before we were there. And having this discussion prior to that, prior to it being a crisis um, and, and, you know, attacking these problems earlier on. Um, is really, you know, that's that's the key and that's really important in what we do. Um, but no, I'm not typically, you know, meeting veterans and their family members who are actively, you know, in crisis, you know, it, and, and that's part of the problem in talking about this is a lot of people feel like, and maybe this is just, you know, my community, the veteran community, but there's a feeling of, you know, unless you have a loaded gun in your hand, you don't need a clinician. You don't need mental wow. health care, right? Like, yeah. unless you're at that point, unless right. you are suicide, that, right. that's what... Um, you know, counselors, therapists, psychologists, that's what they're for is, is for people who are at that point. And, and breaking down that kind of misconception and saying, no, what this is for is if you're stressed. Right? Let's start talking about stress right. and life stressors. Going back to school, moving, finances, marital issues, you're not sleeping well. These are the things that we want to catch people at that point when, it's, when, it, when, when those things are going on and uh, kind of you know, nip the problem in the bud at that point so that we don't get to that crisis point. Because what do you do when someone is at that crisis point and they're unreachable and they're, 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 they've gone too far and, and it's it. really hard to bring them back right. in at that right. point? Well, you brought up a, a little phrase there, resources for help. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Let's talk about some resources for help. Sherry, let's start with you. Uh, young people, I mean, where can they go for help? Great question. Uh, there's there's multiple answers to that. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. From an AFSP perspective, we always talk about the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255, which is also 1-800-273-TALK. Most people don't remember the numbers, but right, right. Um, that's easy. Um, Colorado Crisis Services, we can't say enough good things about they're available and free to anybody in Colorado 24-7. There's walking clinics. They, they know about what goes on all around the state. And, you know, we have very underserved areas in our state. But that doesn't mean they can't get help. Right. It could be a phone call. It could be a text. A lot of our youth are texting. And so, you know, that's an option. Um, people's backyards, students' backyards, they must, sometimes might be afraid. But when they talk to each other and we teach them, we educate them. That's the key in all of this is education and awareness to not be afraid to, to know that it, it's their strength in asking for help or seeking for help for someone else besides yourself even. That's a key one right yes, there, I absolutely. think, too. So we, want to, we want to make that normalized for them to know that it's okay to ask for help. And it's not, again, one size fits all. If you don't find that you got the right help or the right listening or the right support in one spot, don't give up. Keep going. It's just like, you know, if we go shopping for clothes, not, it's not one size fits all. Right. Matt, how about you? Veterans need help? Quickly give me some information where they can get that help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if someone is in crisis, obviously, uh, you know, the VA crisis line is, is your is your best bet to talk to somebody immediately, uh, find care immediately. If you're in the Denver metro area or actually is anywhere in the state of Colorado where we can provide our services, you know, via telehealth. So anywhere in the state of Colorado, go to Denver Cohen Clinic. That's C-O-H-E-N, DenverCohenClinic.org. Uh, and you can find out information about our, you know, our clinic services here in Colorado. Um, so those are the two I'll throw out there. Yeah. Oh, how about you, Jason? Yeah, those are great. I, I will resonate with all of those. So for us, it's NAMI.org is the national organization, NAMI.org. Um, and locally, uh, my organization is NAMI, N-A-M-I, ADCO, A-D-C-O.org. Um, and NAMI is set up with, again, 14 affiliates in the state. So geographically, you can look at your area and see if there's support um, for education, outreach, and um, support resources in the community. And then my new organization we're working with is a Connection Project, and it's realpeoplerealife.org. 
Well, Sherry Cole, Matt Wettenkamp, Jason Hopkins, thank three of you for coming in today. And in a short amount of time, we cracked open some topics that hopefully will resonate with some of the folks listening today, some of the young people uh, with their parents maybe a little bit. And we appreciate you sharing all your information. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much. Yep, It's a big topic, and we hope you learn something from it. And if you're dealing with a situation, you'll take action. You've just gotten some resources, and we hope we helped you out today. We appreciate you listening. I'm Murphy Houston, and we'll talk again soon. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine, a look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.